let you know the talent was here so you can go. Oh, thanks. <laughs> You're all set. That's yes. good. That's what I was waiting for. Hair flip. <laughs> Welcome to the Mormons and Drugs podcast, a not-so-weekly podcast where uh, I discuss the shockingly frequent intersections of Mormonism, magic, and drugs. I am Cody, the kitchen guy. Yeah. Uh, history buff, ranty host. Joining me is my co-host and producer, Moth Dula. Hello. The talent. <laughs> um, it's been a while. I think we started this at the beginning of COVID and... We still like, in it. Still in it. Seems like there was a time loop over the last year or so. Um, I'm going to take this opportunity now to let you know that the list that we made that you had me look up, I accidentally deleted it. Oh, cool. I had a feeling. <laughs> the way you looked at me when I asked. <laughs> I had a feeling. I, I somehow made like little grid box around it. I was just trying to put lines in it. They have new note features on my phone. <laughs> I didn't want the grid box. I deleted everything's gone. I don't know how okay. to do. So. Well, we had a list of uh, things we were going to address <laughs> over, you know, this last year. The, uh, I remember the first thing on the list. It said this year was fucked up. Yeah, this, 2020 and 21 sucked. That was the first thing. I saw that part right before I deleted it. So that helps. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you're still listening. Or this is your first episode. Uh, essentially, we kind of got caught up in just surviving the last year. So we did that. And I couldn't do this and finish the book, which is kind of the whole point of writing. It was another thing on the list. Prior, we started to prioritize the book. Yeah. So the book is the book's out. The book's done. It's a thing you can buy online. I don't know about it in stores yet, but... The Psychedelic History of Mormonism, Magic, and Drugs, you can find on Amazon or uh, Barnes and Nobles or yeah, any of Amazon the... Amazon and Barnes and Nobles. Those places. Um, that's a book now. Uh, it, uh, that ties into a, another thing I remember on our list. A bunch of you have reached out while we've been gone, uh, and you all have been very nice. A lot of you uh, ask for references. I provide some of them on the site, but if you're looking for some... Some good uh, citations to maybe harangue your relatives or friends with. Um, I suggest you buy my book. It's very well cited and heavily referenced. So it's a $20 book. Also the ebook, but we recommend Oh, yeah. The, the, the ebook's 10 bucks, but, you know, go paper books. Um, yeah, that was another thing. Um, the other thing on the list about. Oh, yes, you were doing interviews on other podcasts so if anyone knows of any podcast that would possibly be interested or with having cody on there go ahead and oh, recommend yeah. us have them reach out we're or happy reach out to us and let us know about it I yeah don't... we'll continue our outreach <laughs> <laughs> um other things See, this is why we made a list i know I shut it. up it was my accident <laughs> oh, we were going to start doing Never. it bi-weekly. Oh, yeah. That was the other thing. Uh, this year is crazy. It continues to kind of keep being crazy. So um, no promises on, on <laughs> consistency from us. Um, <laughs> we're we're just being full. Honesty is... Frankly, I think it's a miracle we're recording right now at all. Yes. We've got our shit together enough to do this. Yeah, it um, is. So you're welcome. There's So we, I think we're like 16 episodes in. 
I have approximately 11 or 12 episodes scripted out for, you know, recording stuff. If things go well, we should be re uh, releasing on a, a bi-weekly basis. If things continue to go as they have been, you know, who fucking knows? Yeah. <laughs> things are just really crazy. So and we're trying to survive. <laughs> we're trying to be honest with you guys. Thank you for sticking around with us. Again, if this is your first time, you have, you know... a that catalog hopefully by the time you catch up we've yeah. got our stuff together and the Oof. second season thing is done and yes oh yeah this is like our word second season ish sort of yeah sort of yeah it was that big intermission of a year or so but we really appreciate all the people who reached out asking if we're coming back it was really nice because honestly we really didn't think anyone was listening <laughs> <laughs> well probably nobody's listening anymore but, um anyway if you oh and guests Oh, yeah, we will be having uh, guests occasionally we this think. last season. Let's see if they um, follow through. We've got a few Most people. Most of our friends and family are just like us. and uh, <laughs> <laughs> Trying to survive. Survive, but also, what's the word? They call it, uh, what is it, corona fatigue, where you just have a serious lack of fucks. Oh, I was going to say flaky. Flaky is okay, sure. Okay. Yeah, that, yeah, it's corona fatigue. That's <laughs> what it is. I've just had it. 36 years oh well <laughs> well i'm super flaky anyway well, no promises about any of this i guess <laughs> maybe guests maybe no maybe consistent bi-weekly podcasts and maybe maybe, no. maybe we'll see what happens guys but let's, um, let's ride this wave together <laughs> hopefully uh we get to the end of this and you're still around and yeah. but it will end that is the thing that we did want to say is that you know we get to the point at the end of the story. I'm pretty sure he dies. Sorry if I just spoiled. Oh no, we we, we I think I spoiled we everything. Take a hard landing on a I think on, I just on Joe's death. I just gave away everything. Yeah. Um, well, spoilers if you, you <laughs> didn't, didn't know. know. <laughs> Joe Joe's dead. Joe, he he, he didn't died. live for 200 years. He's yeah. So we're gonna probably end the story there. Yeah, we'll end the story there because yeah, we're not gonna keep doing mormon news there's a lot of other great podcasts yes. that do that we do not need to compete nor can we nor can we no, no, they're all <laughs> they're a million times they're all more professionals organized. and we're scum non-professional hacks and frauds yep um so <laughs> is that it did mm -hmm. we do it it's a, i that think that's the list the and list. If, it, if we forgot something on the list we'll never know so it's mm. all right all right this is a free podcast anyway so yeah <laughs> I feel like that was a kind of backhanded fuck you to the audience, but I didn't. <laughs> sorry, guys. Sorry. I'm sorry. I'll cut that out. Yeah. <clears throat> He's an asshole. So we're <laughs> getting. Where are we? I, I don't really know. What? I played the last episode, so you'd know right where we landed. I played landed. parts of the last episode, which was rough. I'm going to be honest. I thought. It was not, not my best work. I will try and. Maybe the second season, I will try and drink less. <laughs> I think that was the problem with the that's last an, one. Well, that's something we're working on as well. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> we're getting to uh, a point in the narrative, it seems, where it's difficult to do a recap at the beginning of each episode. So if you're finding yourself lost, as probably I will be, <laughs> um, uh, just go back and listen to things in order. Might I suggest the last episode wherein uh, Joseph Smith leads a very ecstatic and visionary conference uh, of the church in June of 1831. Shit got wild, and it was like a 19th century version of Burning Man at one point. So, mm -hmm. that was, yeah, go listen to the other ones if you're lost. Just to get us back into that headspace, 
during this conference, where backflipping priests were prophesying and exercising devils in clearly altered states of ecstasy, John Whitmer, uh, one of the three witnesses, mentioned that, quote, the spirit fell upon Lyman, and he prophesied concerning the coming of Christ. He said that there were some in the congregation that would live until the Savior should descend from heaven, and with a shout, with all the holy angels with him. He said that the coming of the Savior should be like the rising of the sun in the east, and will cover the whole earth, so that with the coming of the Son of Man be, yea, he will appear in the brightness and consume all before him. Was he a flat earther? Because it doesn't cover the whole earth. Oh, that well, not Flat Earth, but uh, Hollow Earth. Well, maybe we'll do an episode on the Hollow Earth. I was just so. going to say, because it doesn't cover the whole thing, but okay, <laughs> it's round. All right. um, so Jesus is going to come and uh, uh, kill all the, the, the bad people. Quote, And some of my brethren shall suffer martyrdom for the sake of their religion of Jesus Christ, and seal the testimony of Jesus with their blood. He saw the heavens opened, and the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the Father, making intercession for his brethren, the saints. He said that God would work a work in these last days that the tongue cannot express and the mind is not capable to conceive, unquote. Uh, as a finishing side note, Whitmore stated that, quote, the glory of the Lord shone all around, and uh, clearly this congregation was sharing the mysterious spirit that gripped to them uh, shortly after the sacrament was administered. So just a few days later, uh, after the conference that we were talking about in the last episode, giving the spiritually exhausted elders time to integrate, uh, Joseph gives another revelation in which he commands a delegation to travel to Missouri to resume their previously failed mission with the Native Americans. Ruh-oh. ruh The brethren did so, and in the July that followed, Rigdon and Smith followed to see that things went according to plan this time. When the missionary groups met in Jackson County, Missouri, Joseph revealed the location for the first Mormon temple structure, as well as some administrative additions regarding land purchases and church structure. Uh, additionally, although the revelation regarding the infamous Mormon plural marriage was not officially recorded by the church until 1843, it is in this moment in July of 1831, 12 years earlier, that Joseph gives his first secret commandment to church hierarchy regarding uh, taking plural wives. Quote, for, and then again, this is a, uh, a quote of Joseph speaking as a, a meat puppet of God. Quote, for it is my will that in time you should take unto you wives of the Lamanites and Nephites. Those are the Native Americans in the Book of Mormon. Quote, that their prosperity may become white, delightsome, and just, for even now their females are more virtuous than the Gentiles. Unquote. Just uh, going to breeze past that super racist stuff. But the point being that Joseph was giving commandments to take plural wives, even though the Book of Mormon uh, is pretty explicitly against it. But he was secret about it from the beginning? Yes. Um, there, right. this is where we see the evolution. So he writes the book, he, he gets married to Emma. He writes the book of Mormon. He's a newlywed young man. Uh -huh. He's probably doing all right in that department. Very quickly. Uh, he's in his early twenties, becomes very famous, very quickly, very rich and has a lot of, uh, admiring female supporters. So there's this kind of slow evolution of, you know, he starts messing around with the nanny, with Fanny Alger, who we talked about. Uh -huh. um, then he starts approaching other women in the congregation about this, like, celestial ceiling and, like, secret marriage stuff. And then he starts telling the the other members of his hierarchy that this stuff is okay. But he <clears throat> the first uh, um, account of this is was in this trip. What? You just stopped. 
I just realized I made a mistake. Um, so in 1831 was their first trip. This trip I'm talking about was a couple years later. Mm-hmm. 12? Um, this is like 1835 or whatever. Uh, 1836. Shit. See, I'm already messing things up. Back oh, no. Up. We are in 1831. Okay. Flip it in reverse. Nope. No need to. We're doing all right. No, I just... No Missy Elliott. Not, not quite. Didn't realize we were this far back in the timeline. We do better drunk. Maybe I should be drinking. Maybe that's the... <laughs> maybe I should drink just a... Uh, anyway. <laughs> so Joseph's giving his secret uh, uh, commandments to take wives. Um, and so given his upbringing and the original dogma expressed in the Book of Mormon, like I mentioned, Joseph preached against plural, plural marriage originally. Uh, in the Book of Mormon, Jacob chapter 2, verse 30, uh, 24, it says, Behold, David and Solomon truly had many wives and concubines, which was an abominable thing before me, said the Lord. Unquote. If you didn't know, David and Solomon were uh, prophets in the Old Testament. They're Jewish prophets uh, that had a lot of wives and concubines. I think Solomon had like 800 concubines and like a few hundred wives as well, which... Like for uh, real? Huh? Really? Uh, who knows if these people actually existed, but like okay. it says in the Bible that he had like 800 concubines okay. and so many wives and whatever, okay. which which Joseph originally preached was an abomination before the, the Lord. However, given the open uh, plurality practiced in Kirtland, that's the evolution we were talking about, so he... They get all these converts from Kirtland. Joe's out of town. A bunch of people are already practicing plural marriage because a lot of people that use the same Bible to justify plural marriage say that, like, you know, it's biblical. I'm just like Solomon. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to be a prophet like God. So it's good that I have all these child brides. Anyway, that was being practiced in Kirtland, uh, specifically by Isaac Morley, the guy who was holding all of these psychedelic sacraments that were uh, witnessed by J.J. Moss, the, the... like school teacher and surgeon. Mm-hmm. So this is where this kind of starts to seep in, it seems. Joseph, not until the Kirtland years where they were practicing plural marriage, did he start to like see the uh, the other side of that argument, I guess, okay. and started to use it as a justification for his predatory um, advances on uh, women in the congregation. Okay. So yeah, it just... You know, he was 26 years old at this time. He was likely feeling high with power. uh, And this is when he started beginning uh, his own practice of polygamy and using Mormon doctrine of uh, continued revelation as God's excuse. So that idea that, like, God can say things are bad for people in the past and then change his mind in the future. And he can even change it back to the original stuff in the future. You know what I mean? It's just like on whoever's whim, (laughs) he can decide uh, what God's uh, will is. So Joseph had a wildly imaginative fetishization for Native American culture, and the idea of taking a Lamanite wife uh, proved itself irresistible. And this is probably why he gave this revelation, as noted earlier, in secret and without his wife's uh, Emma's knowledge or consent. He he saw an opportunity to send out delegations to the Native Americans and was like, hey, um, I hear sometimes... I've read in books that they give you a wife sometimes. So I just tapped into God. He told me it's totally cool that that can happen if that happens. And also don't tell Emma if it does. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
when Smith's confidant, uh, W.W. Phelps, inquired about this revelation, how we uh, that were mentioned in this revelation could take wives from the natives as they were all married men, Smith completely flipped on his prior writing in the Book of Mormon that I had just quoted by using the same logic in reverse when he replied to Phelps with, in the same manner that Abraham took Hagar and Kuta, and Jacob took Rachel, Bila, and uh, Zilf... Zilpa, by revelation, the saints of the Lord were always directed by revelation. So like I said, it's, it's that like, oh, I'm being biblical and prophetic and stuff. Sometime shortly after arriving back in Kirtland from his trip to Missouri, Smith allegedly told Mary Elizabeth Rollins that she would be the first of his plural wives under the commandment under this commandment of God. Mary was approximately 13 years old at the time. Ew. Yeah, this is where we see a lot of that uh, that grooming stuff start. Emma was, once more, unaware of this interaction. As Mormon historian Grant Palmer noted, quote, It seems highly improbable that God would bring back or restore an ancient cultural custom that was not a doctrine. There is no evidence in the Old or New Testament that God commanded or directed any prophet or king to practice polygamy, unquote. So Grant Palmer, this Mormon historian, is pointing out very rightly that um, even if Solomon and all those people took multiple wives, uh, I think with the exception of Abraham, um, no one told them to do that. And I don't even think Abraham was directed by God to take a second wife. I think like that was his first wife's idea because they were old. And she mm-hmm. was like, maybe we need a young girl to like have a baby with you or whatever. Like I, I, I think he rightly <laughs> points out that um, this is just a stupid excuse used by predatory men <laughs> to, to do really gross things. Hmm. Indeed, it is strikingly odd that, quote, the only true and living church upon the face of the whole earth, which I, the Lord, am well pleased, unquote, uh, can so easily flip drastically on imperative doctrine whenever it suited Smith and the church's hierarchy's fancy. With so many doctrinal inconsistencies in a religion that was just a year old at the time, apostates of the faith began to gather affidavits and publish their evidence of Joseph Smith's new career as a pious fraud. Ezra Booth, one of the men present at the ecstatic endowment of the Melchizedek at the June conference, uh, left the church and began publishing his criticisms in the local paper Ohio Star. Another local Ohio resident, Eber D. Howe, similarly began uh, gathering reports from Smith's old neighbors and acquaintances, as well as those from disaffected Mormons, which he eventually published uh, with others in his book Mormonism Unveiled in 1834. It's a good name. It is a really good name, actually. This is like the first uh, anti-Mormon book. Um, and it, I, I will call it an anti-Mormon book because it is pretty unapologetically anti-Mormon. And <laughs> while he does have a lot of good reporting mm-hmm. in this book, and mm-hmm. he does collect a lot of firsthand affidavits from people who grew up with Smith, huh. he also clearly hates Smith. Okay. <laughs> and his his loathing for the man uh, does paint his journalism. <laughs> so, like, oh, okay. <laughs> so while while it is a good book for for learning things about the, the what really happened around those uh, Joe's original neighborhoods. Yeah. Eber D. Howe really, really hates Smith. <laughs> and Did it's you really use apparent. His book at all in any of your references? Oh yeah, I use okay. it all the time. Because like, <laughs> well, yeah. even even, even pro Mormon historians like uh, his biographer Richard uh, Richard Bushman, um, who's like unapologetically pro Joe Smith, but yeah. wrote a pretty fair biography for a pro Mormon. Even he says like there's really good reporting in this, and it's really hard to come to terms with a lot of the stuff in this. He says that in Joe's biography. Oh. So like even even pro Mormon people have to come to terms with a lot of the stuff he said is backed up 
usually by the Smiths themselves. <laughs> it's the funniest thing. So um, Smith's inconsistencies and in reports of such uh, would absolutely not stop him from continuing on as usual, though, because, you know, he just can't. Um, that's why I often refer to him as the, like, 19th century L. Ron Hubbard. He's mm-hmm. just, he, <laughs> he's never going to stop. Mm-hmm. In February of 1832, uh, just about six months after last episode in that conference we keep talking about, Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon held a session of the School of Prophets, wherein they uh, received a revelation regarding the famous three-tiered Mormon cosmology in a suspiciously vis- visionary manner. Philo Dibble tells the situation quite well in The Juvenile Inspector. Quote, The vision which is recorded in the Book of Doctrine and Covenants, which, uh, what's now DNC 76, was given at the house of Father Johnson in Hiram, Ohio. And during that time that Joseph and Signy were in the spirit and saw the heavens open, there were other men in the room, perhaps twelve, among whom I was uh, one during a part of that time. Probably two-thirds of that time I saw the glory and felt the power, but did not see the vision. Joseph would, at intervals, say, What do I see? As one might say while looking out the window and beholding what all in the room could not see. Then he would relate what he had seen or what he was looking at. And then Sidney replied, I see the same. Presently, Sidney would say, What do I see? And would repeat what he had seen or was seeing. And Joseph would reply, I see the same. So it's this call and response thing where they're like, it looks like they're having the same vision, but it's more or less they're directing each other to have mm-hmm. the same vision. Yeah. And it continues on. This manner of conversation was repeated at short intervals to the end of the vision, and during the whole time not a word was spoken by any other person, not a sound nor motion made by anyone but Joseph and Sidney, and it seemed to me that they were they never moved a joint or limb during the time I was there, which I think was over an hour. And to the end of the vision, Joseph sat firmly and calmly all the time in a midst of magnificent glory, but Sidney sat limp and pale, apparently as limber as a rag, observing which, Joseph remarked smilingly, Sidney is not as used to it as I am, unquote. Aww. So, <laughs> like we talked about, Sidney Rigdon was a visionary guy that received several traumatic head injuries over his life and also dealt with ecstatic or even manic bouts. He did, does not appear to have been a man that necessarily needed exogenous catalysts or like drugs to induce visionary states. Oh. However, Joseph's remark about Sidney's reaction to this particular rev- revelatory session is a suspiciously curious quip about what might be dose variance and dose tolerance. As has been and will be continued to be highlighted, this is not a solitary incident of Smith's and company uh, or their very physical reactions to visionary states, one that interestingly identically mimics the expected states of entheogenic sessions. Does that make sense? Yes, that makes sense of sense. So this is just another incident where um, it seems like Joseph (laughs) had a special session of the prophets and uh, whatever. Yeah, I have no questions. It makes sense. I'll keep <laughs> I'm sorry. Was that a spot where no, I was not used to this? Right. It was clear. You were, you were clear. I'm off my game. Just give me a second. <laughs> uh, life in Kirtland continued on, and converts continued to roll in. In the spring of 1832, still in debt, Joseph established the United Order, uh, which was a doubling down on the revelations he'd received earlier regarding communal property, uh, I think the year before. Unsurprisingly, Joseph continues propositioning teenage girls behind Emma's back, and in late March is at least forced in some way to account for his crimes. 
However, mm. uh, with tragic consequences. Um, well, we'll get to that. This is where we get to dead babies. Oh. Yeah. Um, if you listen to uh, Behind the Bastards, Robert Evans' podcast, he uh, he he talks a lot about how con artists always seem to leave a trail of dead babies. This is yeah, this is the that. beginning of this Gross. is the beginning of Joe's Joe's dead baby trail. Okay. So just a handful of days after forming the United Order, a mob mostly formed of disgruntled Mormons led by uh, Simmons Ryder. Uh, these men were very rightly concerned that Joseph meant to confiscate their property and distribute it back to them as he saw fit, which he and Rigdon were most certainly going to do. <laughs> um, several of the men in this mob were members of the Johnson family, who we've quoted from several times. They were kind of uh, tight in the Mormon circle. Um, and they were close relatives to Nancy Johnson, who was just 16 years old and another apple of Prophet Joe's eye. Uh, the Johnson men were seeking, it seems, frontier-style vengeance against Joe for his alleged relationship or propositions with Nancy. Biographer Fawn Brody said of the incident, quote, fortified by a barrel of whiskey, the mob smashed their way into the Johnson home on the night of March 24th, 1832, and dragged Joseph from the trundle bed where he had fallen asleep while waiting with one of the twins. They stripped him, scratched and beat him with savage pleasure, and smearing his bleeding body with tar from head to foot, ripping a pillow into shreds, they plastered him with feathers. It is said that Eli Johnson demanded that the prophet be castrated, for he suspected Joseph of being intimate with his sister Nancy Marinda. But the doctor, who had been persuaded to join the mob, declined the responsibility at the last moment, and Johnson had to be content with seeing the prophet beaten senseless. Rigdon, likewise, was beaten and dragged into uh, unconsciousness over the frozen ground. After a time, Joseph sat up and began to tear at the tar that which filled his mouth. His lips were bleeding from a glass vial that he had crushed between his teeth when someone tried to force it down his throat. Um, and this is, we'll talk about this over and over again, but that, that chipped tooth oh, yeah. gave him a whistle. We talked about this before. Yes. He kind of had a quaint little like country yes. like speech impediment. This is where he gets it from, was, was the mob that was trying to force a vial of poison down his throat. Likely one of the older brothers of the young girl he was pro <laughs> propositioning. Um, so he made his way back to the house stiff and cold with pain. Um, uh, Emma opened the door, and in the half-light, the great blotches of tar on his naked body looked to her like blood, and she fainted on the doorstep, unquote. <laughs> Despite this very severe treatment, not only will one of the Johnson men uh, that didn't take place in the mob beating later go on to become one of the Twelve Apostles, but Joseph would later officially take Nancy as one of his secret polygamous wives. So even that's why they suspect this was probably the first time a lot of the Johnson brothers learned about Joe's relationship and weren't too happy about it. And then he, it seems like, kind of got them all on board eventually. And how old was she? <laughs> oh, sorry. How old was she? She was 16 at the time of this beating, okay. which kind of is about the age range he was he was Going into. Okay. Uh, it was it, it seems like he liked the 14 to 18 year olds and then occasionally he would step outside that, but he more or less that's who he was shooting for. Okay. Uh, as far as I've <laughs> gathered. And so like after a while the brothers just got used to it and just Well, he also had all these he he had a million uh 
prophetic excuses for why this was happening. And he often would have, he had this weird way of being like, I don't want this, you know, but God's telling me to do this. And much like Abraham was told to kill his son, like I, this is our Abrahamic test. And like, we have to do this. And you know what, actually, since you've told me no so many times, God's really upset now. And he has this angel standing over our head with a fiery sword that's about ready to kill me if you say no again. And it was like super gross and messed up but he had a he had a progressive way of like getting people on board by by hook or by crook so again he he marries nancy eventually and sadly uh due to being exposed in the cold night air the twin child that joseph was sleeping with in that account uh when the mob grabbed him caught pneumonia and died five days later Um, compounding this tragedy emma had given birth to twins earlier that spring prior Mm -hmm. and who had died just hours after birth And that same day, Julia Clapp Murdoch, another prominent early Mormon, died while giving birth to twins. So uh, her grieving widower, John Murdoch, who had no idea how to take care of two twins, uh, then gave the newborn babies to Emma and Joseph to adopt. And it's just shy of a year later of this, because of Joseph's actions, that one of the substitute twins is now dead. To his credit, if you can say that, Joseph showed up to the church meeting the next day likely preaching to the men in the congregation who had taken place in his beating. (laughs) He came out of this seemingly resilient and irreproachable, which was why I say to his credit, he knew that like, if I show up and like show these guys down, it kind of takes a lot of the steam out of this. Additionally, uh, like I said, that chipped tooth Joseph received from the beating by the mob gave him a slight whistle whenever he spoke from this period onward, a noted speech impediment that seemed to make the backwards prophet, unfortunately, all the more charming. Rigdon similarly received a nasty beating and in what appears to be a concussed state asked Joe to kill him the next day with a straight razor Oh, adding to this just two months later in July again this kind of follows the the classic TBI symptoms Rigdon uh, tried to seize control of the church leadership uh, and was subsequently disfellowshipped for a time and like kicked out so he tried to overthrow Joe yeah, it it seems this beating, after having already received several traumatic head injuries, yeah. uh, he he seemed to go through these weird like manic six month periods after a beating like that, or like getting another head injury, <laughs> which is again, that's what you expect for TBI, especially repeated. So yeah, uh, things did not remain so gloomy with all the dead babies, however as the entheogenic sacraments appeared to continue during this time, and great feasts were enjoyed by the Mormons. More ecstatic behavior continued to be displayed by the saints following wine, which was distributed by Joseph Smith, and seemed to be generally acceptable and even encouraged by church hierarchy, so long as the behavior remained restricted to view of church members only. Uh, This did not entirely prevent the inevitable backlash from more temperate or straight-laced members making their way to Kirtland, and indeed uh, contributed to a good many apostates itself. One Boston man, Fanny Brewer, arrived in Kirtland in 1832 and was shocked at what he found. Quote, I left for Boston and Kirtland in all good faith to assemble with the saints, as I thought, and worship God more perfectly. On my arrival, I found brother going to law against brother, drunkenness prevailing to a great extent, and every species of wickedness. Unquote. The drunkenness and various uh, species of wickedness was likely a referral to the feasts and sacrament ceremonies, uh, wherein ecstatic Pentecostalism seemed to be reliably following the administration of the sacrament. 
As rumors spread, the reception of such came with mixed results from both Mormons and non-Mormons alike. Before joining the church in 1832, Brigham Young alleges that he defended the Book of Mormon and the character of Smith in an exchange between himself and a preacher who he named as an old family friend. The man called Joseph, apparently in this exchange, a liar, money digger, gambler, and whoremaster. Oh. Which... Kind of nailed it on the head there. I think, yeah. <laughs> How well do you know, Joe? <laughs> um, so uh, Brigham, Brigham said, apparently in, in retort, <sighs> I have never seen him, meaning Joseph Smith, and do not know his private character. The doctrine he teaches is all I need to know about the matter. Bring anything against him if you can. As for anything else, I do not care. If he acts like a devil, he has brought forth a doctrine that will save us. If we will abide it. He may get drunk every day of his life, sleep with his neighbor's daughter every night, run horses and gambles. I do not care anything for that, for I never embrace any man in my faith. But the doctrine he has produced will save you and me and the whole world. And if you can find fault with that, find it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so I, I think I've uh, spent a long time writing a book that is... Finding the fault. Exactly that. Um <laughs> It's also really interesting that um, uh, apparently, by his own admission, he'd never met this man, but was willing to like literally make a deal with the. De- he said he may act a devil, and that's yeah. fine. Like Brigham was the type of man <laughs> that if he saw a good opportunity in it, he would. Yeah, he. This is a quote from him. He was saying this, which I think is very illuminating, as clearly illustrated thus far. There were a great many people who were willing to find fault with Joseph's behavior. The early Mormon feasts and sacraments even seemed to escalate in terms of ecstatic behavior at this time, with the only restriction being that they took place among congregational members. William Smith said that the hierarchy would call out, quote, And we shall have a feast of fat things, wine on the lees well refined. They generally had two pails of wine, and it was called a feast. We had a tin cup. And when the audience was convened and a speech made, then with the cup in each pail, they passed around the pails. The wa- Wait, their feast was just cups of wine? They'd have like a big dinner and they'd oh. pass around these pails. They'd like bless it and sanctify it. And like, and then they'd basically, we're going to have a big f- like feast for the Lord. Um, and so they'd make a speech. So they passed around this pail to the dinner, around the dinner table. And, quote, the women on one side of the house and the men on the other, and we had as much wine as we wanted. Then we had a hymn and sometimes a prayer. Then the wine would be passed around again, and then we would have cakes and wine. After the cakes and wine had passed, it was then the season to speak with tongues, and I spoke with the rest. Of course, I had heard the rest of them, and I made such noises as the rest of them did, and somehow or other the story obtained that I had the power to speak with tongues. I talked in unknown tongues, and he, meaning Rigdon, interpreted my speech. Oh. And allowing that Sidney interpreted what I said, I never made so fine a speech in my life. Unquote. So that's the brother of Joseph Smith, that's William Smith, mm-hmm. who's talking about these drunken parties they'd have, who about after an hour into the party, mm-hmm. it sounds like, Everyone started getting all hopped up and talking in tongues and stuff. And he, by his own admission, says, I was speaking gibberish. Yeah. And so long as Rigdon interpreted my speech. <laughs> I spoke beautifully. Well, yeah, because Rigdon was like a famous orator and he was like a really, he was a biblical scholar. So as long as Rigdon was interpreting everything, I sounded great. <laughs> <laughs> so like when I, I just actually did just did an interview uh, with 
with Greg uh, Higher Side Chats, and he asked, he was, he kept asking me like, um, what would I point to uh, for, you know, proving that Joe and his family were cons, or like, you know, why do you think that they were frauds? And I kept like bringing up things like this, and this, like, this is <laughs> by their own tongue, <laughs> they are admitting that they're frauds, <laughs> and that they're doing it to dupe the congregation. Yeah. Like, it's just. These are great little moments. <clears throat> so in his own words, again, William Smith, the brother of Joe, the prophet, highlights the religiously ecstatic manifestations that followed liberal use of laced wine and admits that he even, tongue in cheek, that such events were largely a farce among the hierarchy for the benefit of the congregation. This phenomenon of speaking in tongues was uh, an alleged revival of the Adamic language, God's perfect language that Adam used to communicate directly with God and the angels. Uh, Is that what William was speaking? And that, well, that's uh, so when when pe when people speak in tongues uh -huh. and you, people yeah. do it today, that they're apparently speaking the the angel language or whatever right. a lot of them say this sometimes they they there's other ways of explaining it but most people say that they're trying they're speaking endemic um and this revival along with the call and translation form of practicing in uh speaking in tongues is yet another throwback to john d's Anakim system that joe seemed to feel most comfortable with so like when he was talking with uh rigdon and being like this is what i see and oh that's okay yeah yeah that all kind of falls in line with traditional Anakian sc uh, scrying work Although, a, with a more pious and sober recounting, Joseph Smith himself uh, engaged in these practices after sacrament ceremonies. Of course with, he did. Of course he did. Of course he did. With the effects uh, of such lasting long into the night as one would expect from entheogenic administration. This is Joe again. Quote, I spoke to the conference in another tongue and was followed in the same gift by Brother Zebedai Coltrin and he by Brother William Smith, after which the Lord poured out his spirit in a miraculous manner until all the elders spake in tongues and several members, both male and female, exercised the same gift. Great and glorious were the divine manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Praises were sung to God and the Lamb, speaking and praying all in tongues, occupied the conference until a late hour at night, so Rejoiced were we at the return of these long absent blessings. Uh, so he's saying long absent because, like, there's a scene in the Bible where they have this Pentecostal revival thing, and the revival is is bringing back that sort of apostolic or like the time of Jesus practice where they they had these miraculous manifestations. So while Joe's recounting of these events pointedly fails to mention the correlation between sacramental wine and the ecstatic states of consciousness, uh, there were plenty of others who did. There were also many that simply took notice of Joe's more recreational use of mixed wines. Uh, commenting on Joe's openly hedonistic behavior during the early days of Kirtland, uh, historian Lamar Peterson cited Kirtland resident Chauncey Webb. Quote, I was intimately acquainted with Joseph Smith and his family for 11 years, also with all of the leading men of the church down to the present time. After remarking that good whiskey could be purchased in Kirtland for only 25 cents a gallon, Webb added, No wonder that Joseph Smith sometimes went to bed with his boots on, or that he slept, as he sometimes did, in a ditch. He was a right jolly prophet, no sanctimonious humbug about him. Oh my gosh. <laughs> right? That's one way to describe it. Yeah, pretty awesome. Well, 
pretty awesome and all for being so horrible. <laughs> With all the good cheer flowing around him, it's no wonder that he was a right jolly prophet. Um, as in early January of 1833, Joseph began meetings for the elite brethren of the Mormon uh, community, which he called the School of Prophets. This is what that, um, that revelation where they were calling and responding was in. That was one of the early meetings. Joe officially forms the School of Prophets uh, in, in January of 33. What's the point of the School of Prophets? To teach him? To, uh, he, this is kind of what I point to in that progressive, like, it was all out in the open, and then it they sort of Closed progressively it. put it behind more and more doors. Mm -hmm. And then eventually everyone forgot about it. But this is one of the first times where Joe clearly has a group of members who he's going to have secret ceremonies with okay. where he gives secret revelations and has secret um very ecstatic meetings this is the men's lodge yeah it's a, it's a, essentially a, a men's only club the other uh, the feasts were with men and women and mm -hmm. this was for the the bros only <laughs> so these these men only meetings much like the celibate fraternity at the Ephrata cloister uh, this is, again, why there's a correlation there. They did the same thing by splitting them up, and the men could only uh, take part in these ceremonies. Okay. Um, these provided a private setting for Joe's more potent entheogenic sessions. Reflecting on one such meeting in March of that year, Joe himself recorded, quote, I then blessed the bread and wine and distributed a portion to each. Many of the brethren saw a heavenly vision of the Savior and concourses of angels and many other things which each one has a record of what he saw, unquote. While always careful to neither reveal the exact recipe for this divinely inspired wine, Joseph always kept its administration limited to the hands of just himself or a handful of elite Mormon men. It's important to note once more that strictly alcohol-induced hallucinations are extremely rare and generally only experienced in later stages of alcoholism or al alcohol poisoning, and are also most often auditory in nature. For Joseph to reliably induce visionary states in large groups of people, an entheogenically laced wine seems the most probable and simple explanation. While quoting his Mormon friend decades after these events, Stephen Hart made the following report. Quote, the Lord's Supper was celebrated, and they passed the wine in pail several times to the audience, and each person drank as much as he chose from a cup. It was mixed liquor, and he believed the Mormon leaders intended to get the audience uh, under the influence of the mixed liquor so that they would believe it was the Lord's doings. It's a, it's a friend of Joe, years later. Well, who was he talking to about that? Uh, this is Deming's Naked Truths. I found this in Lamar Peterson's Hearts Made Glad. Um, I'd have to look okay. up exactly, but it's you. This sounds like he was giving a report to another. This is a person who was with Joe giving a report to a reporter who wrote down a secondhand account and then gave that. Uh, Lamar Peterson used that in his book. It's kind of just point blank. But yes, it's very on the nose. <laughs> like he was. We all know now what a mixed liquor is, right? But like more like Lamar Peterson read that put it in his book but was just like liquor see he put liquor in it he completely skipped mixed liquor like he, he was like what it was a cocktail it's like N no yeah. <laughs> mixed liquor meant there's drugs in it and that's what i'm trying to bring back like people have been saying this from the get-go there were some uh who attempted to further restrict the behavior of the main congregation perhaps leaving room for more of uh, uh, these intimate sessions in the School of Prophets. Um, John Murdoch, the same man that supplied Joe and Emma with their adopted twins, now just a twin, mm -hmm. 
pleaded with his fellow Mormons to tone down their ecstatic behavior altogether. Quote, Beloved brethren and sisters of the Lord of Savior Jesus Christ, I beseech you in the bowels of mercy to remember the exhortation which I gave while I was yet present with you, to be aware of delusive spirits. I rejoice that our Heavenly Father hath blessed you greatly, as he has done to me, in enabling me to speak in tongues according to our promise, and this without me throwing down or wailing on the ground or anything unbecoming or unmoral. I know that these odd actions and strange noises are not caused by the Spirit of the Lord. Cease your diabolical acts of enthusiasm. In a church... Bless him greatly. His wife died. (laughs) He had to give his kids away, and then one of them also got killed. Yes, this... John Murdoch's kind of a tragic figure, but he he is... He seems to be piously beseeching the audience and being like... Dude, guys, guys. (laughs) I got really fucked up, too. But we should chill. Yeah, well, and he he's he's again saying like they're like handle your shit like again, you don't need yeah, to guess, you can do the ecstatic but... stuff and have the experience you don't need to roll around on the ground and rip your clothes off and do the 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 super nonsensical things so he's just telling people to tone it down essentially again and again because people in the audience are not all cool with us and like we can't let the other people see this is, is i think a, another major of concern rock. of his yes and then the school of rock made that uh, a little easier okay. <laughs> so in a church that encouraged and valued personal revelation smith was constantly dealing with uh, conflicting conceptions of his own religion joe was forced to regularly offer revelations which clarified this particular mormon doctrine or that and after urging from his closer confidants Smith at least put a restriction on the speaking in tongues phenomenon because it was just kept getting out of hand. And this is the thing he says. If you have a matter to reveal, let it be known in our own tongue. Do not indulge too much in the exercise of the gift of tongues or the devil will take advantage of the innocent and the unwary. You may speak in tongues for your own comfort, but I lay down this as a rule. If anything is taught by the gift of tongues, it is not to be received for doctrine. And that's... uh, So can't speak in tongues to make a doctrine so you can speak in tongues to as a as a display of religious ecstasy but it, basically nobody's to take anything you say seriously <laughs> which is so you have this power supposedly to speak the angel angel's language but we're going to ignore it even though that's what everyone wants to do and that's why they're all coming Unless here somebody to do like Joe or Rigdon <laughs> gets to do gets it. Gets to do it, and it it's just and very it, okay. wishy washy, and it's starting to get a little, yeah. The it just doesn't make sense. <laughs> well, it's like I talk about constantly: is that if you give me internal logic, like tell me how your universe works, I'm willing to buy in. But be consistent. Mm-hmm. Be <laughs> like, consistent. Um, Goodness. And this is why modern Mormons are instructed that the uh, gift of tongues spoken at this time, mm-hmm. while sometimes a silly expression of religious ecstasy, mm-hmm. was most often a legitimate miracle of the early church where one person, th- this is how they explain it to themselves. And this is how I was told what, what Joseph, Joseph meant by the gift of tongues. Mm-hmm. Um, I was told that this is where one person could spontaneously and quite fluently speak in a foreign language uh, in order to preach Mormonism or to like talk with another person about Mormonism. And it was like a miracle for God to let two people speak to each other um, in order to spread the good word, so to speak. Um, And there is even an account of Missouri missionaries delivering a sermon 
to the so-called Lamanites along their border uh, entirely in their own language uh, or native tongue, uh, which the missionaries did not know. And I heard they tell this story all the time. Um, and I even heard anex- anecdotes about the missionaries being unaware that they'd even spoken in another language. So they were just like preaching and their friend was like did you realize you spoke another language and they're like no I, not at all in actuality true to mormon style racism and propaganda this was really just a nicely dressed white guy shouting gibberish at a group of likely very confused native americans we're like i don't know he seems really nice they brought us stuff uh, we should let him finish i think i don't does he think we understand him i i don't know probably probably very confused i I try and put myself in their shoes. (laughs) Sometime in the early spring of 1833, after long months of propositioning young teenage Mormon girls with what he called spiritual wifery, Joe finally convinces his 16-year-old housekeeper to marry him in secret. This relationship remains secret right under Emma's nose, who sadly takes the girl on as a sort of surrogate daughter before Emma discovers (sighs) the relationship approximately three years later. So this girl is living in their house as their, as their housekeeper, um, and her and Emma have this very tight relationship for three years while he's married to both of them. Um, again, Emma had no clue, clearly. Um, establish- how, many, how many kids did they have at this time? At this time, none. They didn't um, have any kids, and she still. She, what, she, what is Emma doing? She's had no. She's had several babies that keep dying after shortly after childbirth. So she's just horribly depressed. I. That woman had another tragic story. (laughs) Um, That's its own story. Um, Sometimes I I don't have enough time to go (laughs) off on Emma's tangents. Maybe I'll do a bonus episode where we just focus on Emma because she is a badass at times and like kind of holds Joe accountable for like, hey, I know what you're doing, and we'll we'll get to that point later in the uh, the Illinois years where she starts kind of calling Joe out in public and like making him uh, accountable and there's one point where she even threatens like hey if you get to marry all these uh, women all these women and it's prophetic i'm your wife i'm the like prophetess so like yeah she like threatens him with marrying a bunch of dudes and emma's very interesting but uh i i can't uh repeatedly go down her her rabbit hole but at this time, she's she's doing her own church administrative stuff. She okay. she organizes like the the first hymn book, I think. Um, she starts like the what's called the Relief Society, which is like like the School of Prophets for the men, but it's for the women. Um, and it, it anyway, she's doing her own stuff. They make quilts for people. Yeah, sometimes like I've seen them make quilts before. <laughs> <laughs> Establishing his future order of operations for these matters, Smith gets a wingman. The wingman propositions the target girls, uh, family and friends, with secret and sacred revelations for them only. And if the girl refuses, they persist anyways. Joe is a big fan of Sean Connery's later approach. In the voice. I have to do it? Yeah. 50 no's and a yes. (laughs) Means yes. Um... (laughs) Uh, so if if the girl still persists on saying no joe possibly drugs and then threatens her with angelic destruction lest she consent finally we'll we'll cover all this later but like i said it there's a this is kind of the where he establishes that mo it doesn't appear to have gotten that far because uh in fanny's case it seems as though 
he did his wooing while she worked in the home. But and that maybe her family seems to have consented in some way as oh, not only because he's a rich dude and she's cleaning his house. Well, and it, again, he they're he's the prophet and he shows up and he's like, "Hey, I have the secret doctrine. God told me to marry your daughter in private, and she's supposed to be this like super secret, super important woman in the in the coming of God and mm-hmm. all this stuff." So some of these people buy into it. Um, and f- like I said, Fanny's family seemed to consent in some way because not only did Levi um, Hancock, Joe's wingman, ask for her father's permission in this circumstance, but they remained members of the church after the scandal that's about to ensue. Okay. So like everything blows up and they just kind of hop town and stay Mormon. Okay. Many Mormons will tell outsiders that these wives were spiritual wives, a term Smith himself coined while defending the practice. Uh, and this is to give the illusion that such relationships were of a religious nature and not sexual at all. This is a, we're celestial, not terrestrial. This is a utter nonsense, as a number of these women believe their children to be Smiths and not their actual husbands. Uh, we can talk more about that later. Uh, furthermore, as we will cover in following episodes, Emma eventually caught Joe and Fanny literally rolling in the hay in their barn <laughs> while she spied them through a crack in the door. These were clearly sexual relationships, and in many cases with what we would today consider children. But On that note, okay. <laughs> another, just quickly, another thing worth mentioning is that Joe liked to mark out his polygamous brides early. Um, and this is where we get into that grooming territory. Mary Rollins Leitner, a woman of some note in Mormon history, met the prophet at the age of 12 uh, and received a blessing from Joe that marked her out in a not-so-ambiguous way. Remembering her first encounter with Smith, she remarked, quote, When he saw me, he looked at me so earnestly, I felt almost afraid, and I thought, he can read my every thought. That first... First gut intuition. That's right, <laughs> Spot girl. On. Spot on, girl. And I thought how blue his eyes were. After a moment or Dog two, God. he came and put his hands on my head and gave me a great blessing, the first I'd ever received. Joseph also prepared uh, Mary for their eventual marriage when he said, He told me about uh, this great vision concerning me. He said I was the first woman God commanded him to take as a plural wife. Was it a throbbing vision? <laughs> it's a hard throbbing vision. <laughs> Uh, this was not the only very young girl that Smith marked out this way. Um, there is a lot of contentious argument over whether or not Smith was like a pedophile or not, uh, which I think is rather semantic and revolves around the, the technical definition of a pedophile being an attraction to prepubescent or postpubescent children. Um, while a lot of these girls, uh, while a lot of these girls were marked out as young as the ages of eight, it appears that Smith did not officially marry any of them or engage with them sexually until they were uh, post-pubescent. I personally don't see a lot of difference between the two with children that young. He <laughs> or... talked to his lawyer. Yeah. That's the difference. <laughs> gross is just gross. Um, Joe's disgusting MO and uh, the ridiculous lengths some historians go to defend this guy's character is, rid- is crazy. Um, unfortunately, we will have to continue to cover this in greater and greater detail as it progresses, because it just gets worse, and it's actually what leads to his downfall. And the, actually, and like this girl just said, Mary Rollins, um, about being marked out as his first plural wife, clearly she was not his first plural wife. Oh, that was part of this. That was part MO. of the thing, is they all thought they were special. I'm the uh, You're one. the first one. You're my first secret one. So don't talk to anyone else about oh. this, especially that lady over there. <laughs> or, or, or that Or one. that lady. Actually, or... 
don't, don't talk no to one. anybody. Don't, yeah. Like, <laughs> and it gets so bad that there's eventually a, we'll get to a scene where Joseph is standing next to Emma in front of the release society, just a bunch of women and uh, upwards of 40 women in the congregation are married to him secretly. And he's giving a speech about how ridiculous it is that I could have more than one wife. I can't even handle this lady. And he's like joking <laughs> with the congregation about Emma Emma's to a bunch of his secret wives. It gets pretty ridiculous at one point. Um, yeah, we're at an hour. We'll, we'll end it there. That's about an hour. Um, what do we do at the end of the show? I don't even remember anymore. I don't think we ever had a good ending. <laughs> um, no, the the the. Oh, I have a I have a lead no. in. I don't have an exit. No, no, we don't. We just uh. always. It's just like bye. Okay, I'm done. Well, um, the book once more is out. It's on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, and stuff. If you don't want to buy it or you can't buy it, and you still want to support the podcast or like my work in any way i would greatly appreciate it if you have an amazon account or a barnes and noble account just throw me a good review maybe and like a nice comment really does a lot to bump me up in the algorithm and gives me a bunch of exposure and stars greatly combats a lot of the negative nonsensical stuff i have to deal with with just people who are angry i wrote the book in the first place (laughs) (laughs) so that would be great what yeah. else do we got? Oh, that's, that's... Do we still have an Instagram? Yes. Oh, yeah, we do. We got an Instagram. We do still have an Instagram. We got rid of everything else because well, Twitter sucks. I fucking hated yeah, Twitter. It's a bunch I of really horrible mean Reddit people. Reddit was bad, too. Reddit was also really Facebook. awful mean people. And then Facebook has always just been oh, wait, disgusting. What is it, Moda or Meta? It changed oh. now. Whatever. Whatever. We are not fans. <laughs> we're, but we're, I mean, rotchety, horrible Kermit. Kermit. Kermudgeons. So (laughs) we do Instagram. Yeah, you can get us on Instagram. That's about Uh, as much attention we'll give social media. Mormonsanddrugs.com. If you want to email us, you can say hi. Or just like throw us hate mail at mormonsanddrugs at gmail.com. Yeah. Mormonsanddrugs podcast, I think, is what we are on Instagram. But It was lovely to rant at all of you again. Looks tired. Do I? (laughs) Or moth. You better edit that out. I will definitely edit that out. And you're going to edit out all of that. I look tired. You're going to say I look fantastic. Say it right. <laughs> moth looks fantastic. <laughs> Not irritated with me at all. <laughs> she looks stunning, poised, and infinitely patient. Glowing. Yeah. Bemused by my boyish charm. Is that? Am I pushing it now? Now you're pushing it. Okay. There's a whole section he edited out. <laughs> Um, <laughs> God, I'm bad at the exit. Uh, bye. That's really shit. Now you left me. I got to do that on my own. That was it. You say bye. I'm. Just, that, was it. that was awful. That's why I let you do it. I wish I could fire me. <laughs>